Hello and welcome back to the School of Surgery. My name is Benjamin Baker and I'm an academic junior doctor and I'm here today with Dr Tom Heinink, an anaesthetic specialist registrar in Derby. Today we're going to talk about the management of acute pain in the post-operative period and in particular we're going to cover the WHO pain ladder and patient-controlled analgesia or PCA. Epidural analgesia has already been covered in a previous podcast. So thanks for joining us Tom. Good morning Ben. So Let's start with the WHO pain ladder. Have you got a good definition of pain? Um, So pain can be defined uh, as a subjective, unpleasant, sensory and emotional response associated with real or potential tissue damage. It's important to emphasise subjective, as pain is what the patient says it is, and actual or potential, as ongoing tissue damage is not required for pain to be perceived. Okay, so what are the adverse effects of pain? So the main adverse effects of pain relate, first of all, to the release of catecholamines. This causes uh, an increase in cardiac work, reduced wound perfusion, and delayed wound healing. It can also cause reduced respiratory excursion, and this can lead to a risk of atelectasis and consolidation. It can cause gastrointestinal atony, which can be perceived by the patient as nausea and vomiting, and also an ileus. Pain can cause bladder atony, which can lead to urinary retention, And it also has adverse psychological effects. Okay, so the WHO pain ladder was initially developed for the management of patients with chronic pain. But how can it be adapted for acute pain? So chronic pain is pain that usually gets worse with time, hence the stepwise addition of drugs. Acute pain usually starts badly and gets better with time. So it has been suggested that you should step down the pain ladder as pain improves. That is, start giving the patient everything and remove drugs as they are no longer needed. Thinking about the initial pain ladder, step one is to give a non-opioid drug plus or minus an adjuvant. Step two is to give a weak opioid with or without non-opioid with or without an adjuvant. And step three is to give a strong opioid plus a non-opioid plus uh, an adjuvant. Okay, so let's go through those in turn then. So starting with non-opioids, I assume the mainstay there would be paracetamol, would it? Yes. You can use it orally or if the patient is nil by mouth intravenously at a dose of one milligram four times a day. A rectal formulation is also available but this is expensive and poorly absorbed. The dose must be reduced in patients weighing less than 50 kilograms. Paracetamol is generally very safe particularly for short-term use unless taken in overdose when it is rapidly hepatotoxic. Okay and um, what sort of adjuvants do you tend to use? So these are predominantly non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs for example ibuprofen at a starting dose of 400 milligrams three times a day, although this can be increased up to 2.4 grams daily. Diclofenac is an alternative at a dose of 50 milligrams three times a day. Diclofenac can be given rectally. Parental preparations of these drugs are not widely available in a ward environment. Again, the doses must be adjusted in patients less than 50 kilograms. Mm, and as a junior doctor, I'm particularly wary about prescribing um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and that's not without good reason, is it? No. Non-steroidals can have a number of side effects, uh, and these are mostly due to the inhibition of prostaglandin production. Side effects can be remembered using the mnemonic GRAB, that is, gastric, renal, asthma, and bleeding. They can cause gastric ulceration, renal failure, exacerbate asthma, and impair platelet function. However, most patients with asthma can safely take non-steroidal drugs, and it is usually best to ask patients if they have had any problems with these drugs previously. Okay, 
Let's move on to talk about opioids a bit now. So starting with weak opioids, do you have any which you use routinely? Uh, so these are normally uh, either tramadol at a dose of 50 to 100 milligrams four times a day or codeine at a dose of 30 to 60 milligrams four times a day. Codeine is a prodrug for morphine. It is metabolised in the liver from codeine to morphine. This process is variable in different patients. Some will rapidly metabolise it and get good analgesia, whilst others will metabolise it slowly or incompletely, and so get poor analgesia. Tramadol has multiple actions. Partly it is a weak opioid, uh, although again it requires metabolism to a more active compound to exert its main opioid effect. Partly it inhibits central noradrenaline reuptake, and partly it causes release of serotonin. Therefore, it can interact with other serotonergic drugs, for example, the SSRIs. Does it have any other side effects? As well as its opioid side effects, which we will discuss in a moment, it can reduce the seizure threshold in epileptics, particularly if they are taking SSRIs. OK, so moving on to strong opioids now. Can you tell us about some of those? So there are mo- multiple strong opioids that are most commonly used is morphine. It can be given orally, intravenously, subcutaneously or intramuscularly. The dose required is very variable, depending on patient size, severity of pain and tolerance to morphine. A good starting point is normally around 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams per kilogram perentrally. In practice, 5 to 10 milligrams are often prescribed. It is important to remember that the oral bioavailability of morphine is only 30 to 50%, so an oral dose must be two to three times greater than a parenteral dose. Okay, so we've talked about lots of different analgesics now, and it's often useful to think about their relative strengths when prescribing them for patients. That's right. The BNF contains a good quick reference table with opioid equivalents, but as a rule of thumb, oral morphine is approximately 10 times as potent as a weak opioid such as tramadol or codeine, and subcutaneous or intravenous morphine is approximately 20 times as potent. So, for example, 100 milligrams of tramadol would equate to 10 milligrams of oromorph or 5 milligrams of IV morphine. Diamorphine is more potent still. Take extra care when converting between opioid medications and always consult either the BNF, hospital guidelines or your pharmacist if you're unsure. Okay, so moving on to patient-controlled analgesia, um, or PCA. That sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? But what exactly is it? So a PCA is a way of delivering intravenous opioids to, uh, to a patient Uh, which the patient themselves controls. Uh, It's delivered via syringe pump and a dedicated intravenous line. It allows patients to administer a set amount of analgesia, usually intravenous morphine, by pressing a button. It locks out for a certain period after delivery, usually set at five minutes, to allow morphine to work and to prevent overdose. It can also be programmed to deliver a background infusion. Under what circumstances would we tend to use a, uh, a PCA? PCAs are generally only used for post-operative patients on surgical wards who cannot take oral analgesia or who are expected to have severe, ongoing pain. Okay, and what are the advantages of a PCA? So there are numerous advantages to a PCA. Uh, Firstly, it's available on demand and isn't dependent on waiting for uh, nursing staff to get controlled drugs out of the cupboard. It reduces patient anxiety and increases satisfaction. The dose is easily adjustable in response to pain and it avoids repetitive injections and reduces demands on nursing staff. And as with everything, there must be some disadvantages. Indeed. First of all, a PCA uh, is dependent on having a patent intravenous cannula to allow drug delivery. It can tie the patient down to the bed and can limit post-operative mobilisation. It also requires the patient to be able to press the button, so patients who cannot physically do this, 
for example those with osteoarthritis, or those who cannot understand the concept, for example those with dementia, may not access them appropriately. Also, patients cannot access them whilst asleep. This can be overcome by using a background infusion, but this circumvents one of the key safety features. That is, if you overdose yourself, you fall asleep, and so stop pressing the button. Okay, so I've heard the key with these PCAs is patient education. So what should I be telling my patients? So so first of all, you need to tell the patient that to press the button when they feel pain. You need to tell them that a small amount of pain relief will be delivered, and if the pain does not subside, you can press the button again. It's difficult to overdose due to only a small amount of pain relief being given with each press. And it's also important to educate the patient as to the right time to use the PCA. So inform them uh, to press the button prior to coughing, mobilising or deep breathing. You should also explain the benefits of avoiding pain. So facilitating mobilisation, preventing chest infection and enhancing recovery. The side effects should be discussed. And it's also important to make sure that relatives aren't pressing the button for the patient. So we've spoken a lot about opioids throughout this podcast. Could you just give us a brief summary of their side effects? So the main side effects of opioid drugs are nausea and vomiting, itching, drowsiness, respiratory depression, constipation and a dry mouth. So let's run through some of the key take-home messages from this podcast. The first would be that the definition of pain is a subjective, unpleasant sensory and emotional response associated with real or potential tissue damage. We must remember to appropriately move up the pain ladder in chronic pain, but to start with more potent analgesics in acute pain. The GRAB acronym, gastric, renal, asthma and bleeding, is good to remember the side effects of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And the key to a successful PCA is patient education. So Dr Heineck, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Ben.